Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy for episode number 53. My guest is John Corcoran. Before we jump in the show, I'll make this short and sweet. I'm taking care of my daughter today and she's napping. I'm afraid she's going to wake up at any moment. So in the urgency of that, you can always hit me up, ryan at influencereconomy.com to answer any of your questions about starting a podcast. also have a tip sheet that I give people. It's an action guide for helping people to launch their podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan J. Will. Love hearing from people about the show. Also, InfluencerEconomy.com has all the archives. And finally, if you like this podcast on iTunes, please leave a comment. would love to hear from you. It really helps with the podcast getting featured. So now, a great interview with a good friend, John Corcoran. A very, uh, very, very hearty welcome to the podcast today. I'm with John Corcoran. For those who you don't know him, he's the relationship networking doctor online. Like, and I, I, I just made that up, but I think John is one of these guys, and and we've we've connected a few times. We've talked. I consider him a friend, but he's really a relationship building expert, and he's an author along with other entrepreneurs that focus on key relationships in life and how they lead to success for businesses. And I think your theory is very similar to mine that relationships are crucial to defining really any business and income that you'll have in your career. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that introduction. I'd maybe prefer the love doctor, but I'll take the relationship networking doctor as a fallback. I wrote love doctor and then I had to to take it out because... I didn't see it anywhere on your website or your <laughs> and no one no one believe it and everyone who went to high school with me would be like he's not the love doctor that's what? for sure I took a poll of like the Calabasas high school class of whatever year you graduated and uh they told me that you were uh, I think uh, it was 19 1942 I look a lot younger and yeah uh so glad to have you on the show how you doing I'm doing well thank you for having me what I'd love to talk about is you know your art and science about networking and and connecting with VIPs. And then also, there's certain t- archetypes of people that I always meet that I feel like they burn relationships quickly or they they ask for too much too early or they try to close a deal before it's, it's uh, the right moment to actually work with someone financially. So, you know, in general, like what's your take about relationships in the long view and, and how to avoid burning relationships? Well, I think the long view is absolutely correct, and 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 first of all, I hope that not too many people have tuned tuned out th- hearing that. Oh, great, this is going to be about networking because so often, and the reason that I don't use that word too often or I use it very selectively is because a lot of people hear that word and they think, oh, no, 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 I don't like that. And I, I will hear people say to me all the time things like, you know, I I hate networking, I just hate networking, but I really like connecting with people and I really like meeting new people. And I'm like, well, what do you think it is, you know? And I think the problem is we've all been burned, as you said, by people who you know, uh, we meet at some cocktail party or something and they're immediately sticking their business card in our hand and they're immediately trying to sell us on something. And unfortunately, when it comes to the internet, everything has sped up and everything's so much faster. So you get emails from people where people say things that they wouldn't do in real life. They'll just send an email to you for the first time asking for you to do X, Y, and Z or asking for some kind of, some kind of assistance 
from you that they would never do in, in real life. So it's a real problem. So my philosophy is to take a giving approach and to be much more giving and to, to build a trusted relationship first. And then much later, you can actually ask people for things. So you're a lot like me in that we've had many different career angles and paths, jobs. And now we're in this area where podcasting, writing, and entrepreneurship melds together a lot of different skill sets. And so you've worked for the White House out of college. You've worked in the in the Hollywood entertainment industry in Los Angeles. When you were at the White House, did you think you and you were a speechwriter? Did you during the uh, the Clinton administration? Which it's crazy to think that we could be saying the first Clinton president administration. But do you think that uh, like how much of that experience in politics is you know, led to you in your, your current line of work and helping businesses and entrepreneurs connect? Oh, it's it's crucially important. I'll just tell a story about how I got my job at the White House. So I um, was an intern in the speechwriting office, and uh, this was back in, way back in 1997. It was actually before the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, and so back then, it was actually pretty cool to have a White House intern on your resume. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't until later I came back and, and uh, it became, I actually got called into interviews later because I think people just wanted to Asked me about what it was like to be an intern. Yeah, under the Clinton administration. Yeah, under the Clinton administration. So I've been an intern, and I wanted to get a job at the White House. And a couple of things. One, uh, after graduating, I was oh, from where, Los Angeles. Where, where'd you go to college? I went to UC Santa Barbara, right up the, the coast from you. So no Ivy League school or anything like that. Um, and I was an English major. And, and, I, you, and UC Santa Barbara, I mean, is that it's a party school, right? A lot of people there. It's a party school, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally has a reputation as a party school. Although today it's gotten more academically rigorous. So I don't think I'd get in by today's standards. (laughs) Right. But uh, nevertheless. um, So anyway, so I I, after I uh, had interned, I went back, graduated from college and um, I was uh, and I really wanted to get a job as a right as at the White House. Um, So I kind of set my sights on that. And um, I actually was working in the interim in the entertainment industry in, in L.A. I was working for DreamWorks and for some other uh, uh, other uh, entertainment industry businesses as well. And I, and I um, was preparing to hopefully try and get a job back at the White House. And I heard about that there was this position from a speechwriter who I'd remained in touch with. And and I always say to, to you know to provide value to people. And basically, that's what I did. Like the other speechwriters, I would send them speeches I saw. I'd send them articles that I thought were relevant, things that I thought would be helpful to them. So eventually, one of them tells me about this job that's come up. It was a writer and presidential letter. Wait, wait so you were just you were networking with other speechwriters separately? So it's keeping in touch. Okay. Keeping in touch. You, with, met yeah, with keeping in touch. Like informational interviews or actual formal interviews? No, actually, because I had been an intern in the speechwriting office. Okay. So I'd, I'd worked directly in the speechwriting office with the speechwriters, so I knew all the speechwriters then. Okay. And um, so I kept in touch with them. And so um, I hear about this job that from one of them that was going to be coming up. And so um, I get this phone call. Uh, a co- I, I knew that she might be – that the, the boss for it might be calling to – me at some point to inquire because my name and info had been given to her. So like a couple of days later, maybe a week later, I get this phone call and I and she asked me for my resume and writing samples and all that kind of stuff. And I say, sure, sure, I can get that all for you. And if you want to see a writing sample, you can actually open up today's New York Times to the op-ed section. I actually have a letter to the editor on the op-ed page oh, in today's paper. Oh, nice. And and the reason I mentioned that is because I I knew that this opportunity, that this phone call might come up. And so I'd prepared for it. 
I'd actually I'd provided value to the other speechwriters so that I wasn't just bugging them. I wasn't just calling them weekly and saying, hey, is there a job? Is there a job? Is there a job? I was actually just providing value to them by giving them other speeches, giving them ideas, giving them different quotes that they could use. And then the second point is when an opportunity might be forthcoming, position yourself for success. Do something that might put you in the best position that you can take advantage of that opportunity. And so I ended up getting the job out of that. And how long did it take you from graduation until you got hired? Um, well, let's see. I did a couple things in the interim. I, um, I graduated. It was probably about a year. And probably so you, about a year. But so, I, so you kept staying in touch with everyone that you worked with that's, as an intern? Yeah, I also backpacked around Europe for four months okay. and in the interim. And then I, when I came back, then I probably heard about it sometime in the spring and ended up starting the following summer. Where'd you live in D.C.? I lived in um, uh, Cleveland. Cle I, well, I, first I lived with an uncle in Anacostia. Oh, nice. Which is now a nicely refurbished neighborhood with the baseball stadium. Well, sure wasn't then. No, and uh, no. Anacostia. And, um, and then uh, in, in southeast D.C. And then um, eventually I got a place with a couple other people in Cleveland Park, which was lovely. It was That's where I lived. Really? I lived on Quebec Street. I used to do stand-up comedy in a former life when I was living in D.C., I first started at Nanny O'Brien's, which is a dive bar on Connecticut Avenue across from the Uptown Theater. Oh, yes. I used to do they do stand-up there? I brought stand-up there. I did monthly shows the first Tuesday of every month. So I would be the opening act. That's where I met my wife, actually, was at that dive bar. Really? She, she told me to retire from comedy. When you were performing? Yeah, she told me I was not funny. And she quickly recommended that I retire from comedy and focus on the marketing side of comedy shows. So and if you ask her to this day, she'll still tell you I, w I wasn't funny. <laughs> I remember that bar. It was sticky. <laughs> oh, yeah, around. dude. The floor was, was extremely disgusting. sticky. It had flies all over the place. Yes. I mean, it was definitely not an A-rated restaurant for uh, sanitation standards. But but it, th th that's that's D.C., though. You know, it's it's a fun city, and you spent some time there. So how long were you at the White House? Um, so about a year and a half. Okay. It was at tail tail end of the administration. And um, but it was fun. I mean, the the presidential campaign was going on at the time um, and I enjoyed being there. And it was the kind of crazy place to work where you'd like go to the like be on your way to the restroom and you'd be walking down the hallway and all of a sudden you'd have to stop because Secret Service were there and they'd say, stop, you can't go any further. And then, you know, the president would come out talking with the premier of China. And, they, you know, literally there are times when I'd, I'd be stopped. I couldn't go anywhere. And the two of them, you know, the, the president and some other world leader would be engaged in some kind of heated discussion. And meanwhile, there'd be about 50 different Secret Service slash also Secret Service for whatever the other country um, waiting around while they continue this heated discussion. Oh, wow. It was really cool. Yeah. I mean, that kind of thing was just amazing to see. Why did you want to work at the White House? Well, who doesn't? I mean, I know the West Wing was big back then, but. Was the because uh, you essentially became the Rob Lowe character? Well, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, that's a longer story. I mean, I, I don't. I don't claim that I was the Rob Lowe character. I, I've got a, a story about how I got Rob Lowe to play me on TV, which I can tell you. Yeah, let's talk about that. I've only read about this story. Okay, so what happened was um, this was actually shortly after I after I left the entertainment industry. I still knew a lot of people in the entertainment industry because I just worked there, and then I went to work in DC. And um, I knew someone who knew someone who was working on a pilot. Is it Sam Seaburn? 
Uh, that was that was the Rob Lowe character. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so there was a. So I knew someone who knew someone who's you know working on this pilot. That was a, that they told me it was about um, politics in Washington D.C. I didn't know anything about it. This was '99, and um, so they put me in touch, and I talked with this person a couple of times about what it was like working at the White House. And, you know, I didn't give away any state secrets. I didn't have that high security clearance <laughs> or anything like that. Um, you know, I just told him what my job was like. And, and I, I mean, I could have gotten in trouble because the press office wants to handle stuff like that. But I just, you know, I was helpful. And so anyways, it, it turns out that it was Aaron Sorkin and the show that he was working on was The West Wing. And, and um, the show comes on the air in fall of 99. It ends up being a huge hit. And he immediately had all kinds of former administration officials who were advisors to him. And so he didn't really need me anymore. Right. So flash forward to fall of 99, I, I write the Thanksgiving Proclamation. And the Thanksgiving Proclamation is a historic document that is the reason that we celebrate Thanksgiving today. It was issued by Washington. It was issued by Lincoln. All the presidents have issued it uh, up until today. And it's printed on this old paper. I mean, the presidents used to write it out under, you know, with quill pen in the White House. Now it's written by staff. So uh, it's issued on this big formal parchment paper. I end up writing it. I was very proud of it. I, um, and I sent the document off to Aaron Sorkin. I didn't think much of it. This is how'd you, how'd you get his info? I had his contact in. So, and I think I sent it off to his production company or something like that. Uh, so I sent it off to him, and um, I don't think anything of it. Flash forward a year later, I turn on the Thanksgiving oh, no episode. That's right. I remember that and, one. Yeah, and the, the Thanksgiving episode, and um, the story throughout the episode, the, one of the recurring uh, storylines is the writing of the Thanksgiving proclamation. That's and they're right. all running around trying to write it and everything. At the very end of the episode, the Martin Sheen character, the President Bartlett, is about to walk out into the Rose Garden to read this parchment, this long piece of paper, which has the Thanksgiving proclamation. He's about to read it. He turns back to the camera just before he leaves, and he looks down, and he reads the first line of the Thanksgiving proclamation, and it's the exact same line of the first line of the Thanksgiving proclamation that I had written. And, of course, the, the, the speechwriter that had been writing that particular document throughout the episode was Sam Seaborn, the Rob Lowe character. So that's how I say, that's how I got Rob Lowe to play me on TV. What was, what was the first line? Oh, God, I'm, I don't remember now. <laughs> I mean, have you seen Aaron Sorkin? I've never met him face-to-face. -face. I mean, does he know that you're the author of this? Do you think he, like, cognizantly was aware? He, he's, yeah, I mean, he's accomplished so much that I don't think it, it's probably not even a blip on the radar screen to him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny, because I think... I, I liked the West Wing. It was one of these shows I, I binge watched after it was on the air, and I remember the Thanksgiving episodes. They're always talking about how the, they had the turkeys that were running around, or I they had some turkey thing. Um, okay, so now we have you in 2015. You're now this, you know, the the love relationship doctor, and you've built out this amazing ability that I, I think it's innate in you. I think you've you're born this way, but I feel like. You've also been able to synthesize what you've accomplished in helping your own career and teaching other people about it, which again, not to bore everyone. I don't think this is boring at all because everyone listening to this podcast is in an industry that relationships are important. And the, the majority Free of the industry, every industry, every successful, you look at so many different people and don't take my word for it. I mean, uh, Richard Branson has some great quotes about the importance of getting out there, meeting people, connecting, and he's built a multi-billion-dollar company. So, how can people? Uh, you know, I think one angle I'd love to you know tackle is like how people can 
avoid burning out relationships? You know, how can how can people actually just figure out? Like, because I think you're the model where you give to people, you don't really expect anything directly in return. We have similar philosophies, but things come from elsewhere. And I have a listener uh, named Zan. He's a friend of mine, and he was telling me what he likes about these types of podcast conversations is that you give, you don't accept anything in return. And then just by getting and putting yourself out there, things will happen to you. It's like setting yourself up to succeed versus trying to, you know, calculate everything that you're working on. And how is that, well, how, and that, that how does that affect you? That's a you? good metaphor. I mean, yeah. that's a good metaphor. I mean, I've had people who have, um, like I, there's a, a blog post that I'm still writing that's titled the, how I made a thousand dollars from a single tweet. And it was about, it's a, I need to publish it at some point, but it was about how I shared a friend's newsletter, a friend's newsletter. like she has her own newsletter that I don't know how many subscribers she has. I don't know how many people read it, but I just shared it on Twitter. I said, I, I read this. I like it. It's valuable. Flash forward about a month later, she ended up purchasing a program that I'd promoted and I got a thousand dollar commission off of it. And she said, in part, it was because you shared my newsletter. Wow. Okay. And that's a perfect example of how, like, you know, I just did it to be nice, to be giving, to give pe- to people in my network, but then it ends up coming back in spades. And I've had other people who've, who 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 purchase things from me, products from me, or products that I promoted where I'd get a commission, and they literally emailed me and said, you know, I just wanted to give back to you because uh, of all the value you deliver through your podcast or through your blog or whatever. So, uh, but what I try and do in real life is also just um, just generally being giving in your interactions with people. But I do want to respond to one thing you said. You said that I'm naturally good at good at you know relationship building, and I don't want anyone listening to this to hear that and say, well, yeah, John, he's really good at it. It won't work for me because I'm not naturally good at it. There are a lot of people who will be telling themselves that right now, and that is not true. I don't want anyone to use that as an excuse to excuse their own lack of performance or, or failure. In fact, I'll tell you a story about Jeremy Hall. Jeremy Hall is an amazing guy, a former U.S. Air Force, former Army, former The Activity, which is a Tier 1 Special Forces uh, operation, kind of like the Navy SEALs. He spent 15 years in the, in the military, and when he got out, he had zero private sector experience. He was a philosophy major at the University of Minnesota. He took one of my courses, my Connect with Influencers course. He applied some of this relationship-building stuff that I talk about like crazy. He started with Twitter. He started introducing people. He introducing people to one another, providing value. Long story short, he ends up getting a job with Lead Pages, which is an amazing, successful, hot startup. Um, and the CEO of the company had it actually, it, Jeremy had caught his eye. They actually created a position for Jeremy. Jeremy had zero connections when he started out. And he, he'll tell you he's not the most engaging, dynamic, charming guy on earth. I love him, but you know, he's not like a naturally outgoing type of person. And he ends up working his way into a position where they created a job for him working directly with the CEO. And, and what's more, it was 10 minutes from his house in, in Minneapolis, which is just amazing. So if he can do it, then anyone listening to this can do it as well. So it's something you have to make an effort for. Because I think that a lot of people, they have a philosophy about life and they stick to it. And they're, they're trained to think a certain way, like, okay, I give people or I take from people. Or you know, we've talked about Adam Grant and how, you know how he's a great writer was on both of our podcasts. And he says that most of us are matchers and that you help me, I help you. And it's, it's a quid pro quo thing. 
But with the giving mentality, it's you don't accept you don't expect anything in return. You're just helping people to help because that's just how life works. And how how else have you seen you know from people you've talked to or people that have taken your course or even people you've interviewed on your podcast that giving really does help you succeed in the, in the end? Oh man, where do I start? Yeah, yeah I imagine you, I I asked three questions in one, so. What uh? What's the someone you've? I'll give you yeah. one. I'll give you one example. So, um, I, I mean, almost everyone that I interview on my podcast is a perfect example. So, but I'll give you one. His name's Kevin Thompson, and um, he was once on an Alaska fishing boat. You know, like the most dangerous catch, yeah, like that yeah. TV show. Right. He right. did that. He almost lost his life with one horrible storm. He decided I'm going to get off of this. So he ends up getting off. He ends up becoming a small business owner. Long story short, um. He, you know, he doesn't have an, a, a high level education or anything like that. He's got a crappy, <laughs> really ugly looking website that he's created that is uh, how to teach people how to create an online business. Basically, it's his version of that. There are a million people who have created this type of program. There's a lot of different programs out there. And his has been around for 10 years. If you look at the website, I think it's like theautomaticincomecoach.com. It is the ugliest website you've ever seen in your life. Completely ugly. Yeah. When you know how much he's made off of that ugly website over the last 10 years? Just pick a number. Half a million. 14 and a half million. 14.5 oh, wow. million off of this crappy little website. Because what he does is he goes to the places where people hang out, where he can build a relationship with successful existing entrepreneurs who've got some kind of following or audience. And then he is giving to them. He actually, he boiled it down in my podcast episode where he created this, he has this five question strategy that he actually um, adopted from Dan Sullivan over at the Strategic, Strategic Coach where he will, he meets someone like at, at an event or something uh, and then he says, I want to help you. See how I can help you in any way. And he'll get on the phone with them and he'll do what he calls a strategy session. He asks these five questions. And anyone can do this, by the way, which is what I love about it. Anyone can do this. You're basically asking what's going on in their business and how you can help. And at the end of that conversation, he'll schedule another conversation. And he will, oftentimes, the response will be, well, I can introduce you to X, Y, and Z, these three different people. And then that's it. They're done. Washes his hands. He's done. Or sometimes the answer is, well, why don't we partner up and I can promote my program to you and you can make some money and you can provide some value to your audience. What's and sometimes they pick, it's, it's uh, the automatic income coach is the, the name of the program. So it's, it's like a training program. So, but the thing is, what I love about it is that he's, he's just trying to help people. And oftentimes if he's not a good fit, if he's not a good match for this person, then he tries to give them resources. He tries to make introductions. He tries to, he's got a lot of business experience. He tries to give them advice and that's it. So he's just being giving first. And then it, as a result of that, he's been phenomenally successful. Okay. So that's a great point for someone who's dealing with successful people and isn't plugged into the network. So when I'm interviewed, often, oftentimes the podcast that like people have that uh, are listeners of my show, they'll invite me on, and I'll talk to them about how I interviewed Willie Geist from the Today Show or Freddie Wong, who's a big YouTuber, and they say, "Ryan, that's great, but I didn't go to college with Willie Geist. I didn't work at YouTube, with YouTubers for seven years. I don't know Freddie Wong. What's and it, they're always wanting to know like what's someone who's just starting out, especially as a podcaster or a writer, something." someone doing something that they're they're creating and they have no audience and they don't have the network and you were able to get your foot in the door at the white house 
and keep adding value to them. Like what, what advice do you have or what stories do you have to, to enlighten people about what, what to do when they're just starting out and they have nothing? Yeah, I mean, be like Jeremy Hall, right? I mean, you've got no network, no connections whatsoever. You have to start by identifying the people that you do know, and you probably know more than you think, depending on what industry you're, you're working on getting into. So you identify the people you do know, identify the people who are maybe one or two steps removed from you, one or, degree, one or two degrees of separation removed from you, who you maybe can get to from an introduction, and then identify people who you, you'd like to meet, you'd like to get to know, you know people who are very successful in the industry that you're working to become a part of. Uh, identify those people and then create what I call a conversations list. A conversations list is a list of the 50 people who you'd like to build or deepen a relationship with over the course of the next 12 months. And you can put this list together and it helps give you a roadmap, like some kind of framework. Like these are the people that I'd really like to get to know. And then you know over the next 12 months you need to take some time to do that. Just have a conversation with them. You don't need to stuff everything into one interaction. You can actually take some time. Let the relationship play out over time rather than doing it all at once. The other thing I would recommend is identify the organizations and also the events, like the one-time events or quarterly events or something like that, where these types of people hang out, where the people from the industry that you're interested in hang out and then go and start deepening your relationship with those, which might mean joining the board. It might mean helping to organize an event or something like that. And what do you think about conferences in general and trade shows for your industry? Like if you're a technology startup entrepreneur going to TechCrunch Disrupt to meet other entrepreneurs or going to comic-con you know these i'm talking about bigger trade shows that you know have ten thousand people yeah i think it can be great i think it can be yeah i think it can be great i think uh, you know there's no substitute for face-to-face there's no substitute for meeting people face-to-face and conferences that i've gone to have been tremendously valuable i live in san francisco so i know a lot of people here and i go to events locally here in san francisco so I, i don't really feel the need personally to go to a lot of conferences but if you're listening to this and you're in some small town absolutely it's a great opportunity for you to go meet up with people face to face i will say i do a lot i I see a lot of people particularly in the online space who frankly are conference junkies oh yeah they they go from conference to conference to conference and if you really penciled out like do they see an impact from it it wouldn't pencil out right i know it isn't penciling out so you have to balance conferences oftentimes get in the way of working. It's like, I, you know, this, this whole like article I, I haven't published yet about for the love of God, stop telling me how much you hustle is the name of the article because people that are these hustlers, they tell you how hard they're working and how, you know, they get up at 6am in the morning and they're grinding before you, you even had breakfast. And you know, they're at this conference speaking and meeting with that person. They name drop through social media. Like to your point about there's something about social media that we wouldn't do stuff in real life that we suddenly think is okay. If I walked into a, a cocktail party at your house and I said, John, I've been up since 6 a.m. grinding. Where were you? I would, you, would, you would ask me to, to leave, not so politely. But for some reason, people think on Twitter that's okay and that's normal. Yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who go 100 miles an hour, but they're going in the wrong direction. Exactly. And some people think they know. It's like they're just doing it to do it because they're supposed to do it. Versus actually having the direct, and, and then in relationships, that's where those people that I often, so I have trouble sometimes get, ignoring people. I try to give people a few shots if they ask me for advice. Like, for example, on the podcast, if 
if I've met you through a class I teach on marketing, I give you 15 minutes of free consultation. If you've attended one of my classes, if you write an iPhone, uh, iPod review and you send it to me. And so I've actually cultivated a lot of listeners that, you know, I've, I've helped their companies and their ideas because I feel like why not give back? And then I make a small investment where I'm saying just write a review on, on iTunes and the iPod or uh, on the uh, podcast app. But for, for people out there that are trying to build bigger and longer lasting relationships, I guess, how, how does it come down to like the science of like giving people enough leeway where you can size them up? You know, like how do you tell someone's a taker or a giver, you know, or a matcher versus people that are actually genuinely just confused and they don't know how to ask for help? Um, well, one of the things you can do is you can test people. Um, I, I don't think you should do it too early. I think that if you're building a relationship with someone, you shouldn't be asking initially for them to spend a bunch of time. Um, but you, you know, you can, you can test them by, by asking for something small, you know, it could be like for them to retweet something of yours, you know, I mean, that could be something very easy. Um, or it could be like you, you say, you email them and say, I'm trying to pick a tagline. And so I'm serving everyone whose opinion I respect. Here are the two taglines I'm deciding between which one do you like a or B that's very low barrier to entry, very easy for someone to do. You know, all they have to do is hit reply. And, and if they don't, you know that, okay, maybe I shouldn't ask them for the higher level (laughs) to write a forward to my book or whatever, you know, the higher level commitment. So I think testing people with smaller levels of commitment and then working your way up to higher levels is the way that you know whether they are a giver or not. Um, also, just watch their behavior. You know, watch what they do. I mean, how they interact on social media. I mean, are they talking about themselves all the time? Are they promoting other people? Um, are they just talking about their own stuff? You know, that's, I think that's a big, uh, it's got to be a big red flag to you that this is someone who's not interested in, in giving to other people. What about the person that has to make money and they're anxious and they're worried and they have all this pressure that they need revenue goals and they're in sales or they work around the sales part of their company and they feel like relationships are so important, but they also have to make money and they don't know how to, to, to balance those two things. Well, there's no question that it, it takes time to build relationships. But let me ask you this. Which is the better approach? Is it better for you to immediately approach someone you've just met and ask them to buy your product or buy your service? No. I mean, that's exactly what we were talking about at the beginning of the presentation, at the beginning of the podcast. We were talking about how we don't like that when people do that, when they try and hit you up with the sale immediately. So you, you might have that pressure where you're feeling the pressure to get income or you're feeling the pressure to make money, but you know, trying to sell it someone quickly is not the solution. Um, you, you still have to balance you know, the building the long-term relationship. What you can do, this is what a lot of people don't do, is you've got trusted relationships with people in your network who, you, who you've allowed to go stale. You can reignite yeah. them. Yeah, tell us more about that. That's a, that's a great point. I'd love to hear more about that. Now, honestly, I, I get so frustrated by this because um, people get all excited about Facebook advertising or Twitter advertising or I just need to create a YouTube channel and start doing videos. And it's like, no, you don't. If you're, if you're hurting, if your business is hurting or whatever, what you need to do is go back to the warm relationships that you already have that you've allowed to go stale. And this is what's shocking is if you really look back at your network, people will realize that, oh my gosh, there's 
someone who I thought that I was close with. You know, if, if I gave you the name of someone, you pick a name out of a hat, someone you went to college with, someone, you know, friend, you know, who you lived down the street from you five years ago or something like that, who you used to be close with, right? I could name a name probably and you'd be like, oh yeah, I'm still close with that person. And you, you know, if you really looked, if you really dig down, you'd be like, oh my gosh, I haven't communicated yeah. with that person in two years. Right. And here's what happens. The, the relationship just has gone stale. And so, you know, you, you can't, you can't sell to them immediately. But what you just need to do is you need to reignite the relationship. You need to keep the relationship warm. And it doesn't mean that you're going to email them and say, hey, by the way, did you know I'm a web designer? Do you want to hire me? Haven't talked to you in a while. That's the most annoying kind of email to get, by the way. But what you're going to do is just you know, reach out to them. Reach out to that person and get back in touch with them. And so what are some, what are some easy ways to reach out to people? Because I think there's like that, what you're saying makes so much sense, but it's also... Sometimes people ignore those emails if you get like you haven't heard from that person in three years and you're like, oh, I don't have time or like, how do you get someone's attention on their inbox? Well, I think it starts with awareness of what that of of the the recipient of the person that you're you're trying to email awareness about them. Um, and if you're doing it with someone who you previously had a warm relationship like, let's with, say, let's say you work with someone for, for example, like I've worked with someone for a year and a half. I want to get in touch with them again. I think we may be able to collaborate and they don't necessarily know what I'm up to. I think that's a big problem with people is it's like, how do you update your contacts? Because not everyone checks LinkedIn. Not everyone's going to look at your Facebook update. Like, is there a way that you can covertly say, hey, I want to hear what you're up to in an email to an old colleague, but also say, I'm doing this, by the way. If there's any ways to collaborate, how do we do that? Well, for one, what I try and do with my conversations is I don't try and put every, in an email conversation, I don't try and stuff it all into the first email. Think of it as there's a dialogue and, and a conversation. And it's hard to do because people, people want, it's like you, you feel rushed or anxious and people want to connect in such a very like specific way that they don't get the results they want. It's a, it's a patience, you know, like to the long game we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, it's like if I'm going to invite someone on my podcast, sometimes it's not in the first email. Like right. I'll, maybe I'll just send them an email saying, I like what you do, and that's it. And then they respond back and say something else, and then maybe on the follow-up email, and then I say, you know, and I'd love to have you on my podcast sometime. It doesn't need to be now. Maybe down the line if you've got a book coming out, something like that, you know? Um, so I think that's, that's one thing you can do. Um, awareness of what that person is interested in and what they have going on in their life. So you... So you there's so many different sources of information. One, hopefully you know something about this person because you used to be close with them. So maybe you know that they're crazy about soccer or they're a big fan of the Dallas Cowboys or whatever. You know, so then you can you can respond to that. You can say, hey, did you go to it? I know you love to go with your uncle to Cowboys games each, each September. Did you go this past September? Right. You know, there's, I was just thinking of you. Or you can be like, hey, I was just uh, down at Legoland with my kids and I remembered how you had that crazy Lego collection when you were a kid back when we were in high school. Do you still have that? Just wondering what you're up to. I mean, you can use all kinds of excuses like that. You can send them a resource or an article. You can say, I saw this article that was about Legos. I know you're crazy about Legos. Yeah. Is this article about this crazy creation that this guy over in Minnesota has got this nutty house that's built out of Legos and you send the article to them. It made me think of you and that's it. And then that starts the dialogue. So that starts the conversation. It doesn't have to be very complicated or sophisticated. You don't have to try that hard. It can. You don't even have to be worried about being judged. It just... You want to connect. You've got a connection in the past. Tie it all together. And worst, the worst thing that can happen is they don't respond. 
Exactly. You know? Right. It's like right. You just, you and can... you know what? Some aren't right. I mean, yeah. if you send a hundred of these emails to people that you used to be, you know, have close relationships with, you're not going to get a hundred ten percent responses because that's impossible. You're not probably not going to get a hundred percent. You're probably going to get something less than that. So it's a numbers game. You got to continue to do it. You you can't. You got to kind of like work through the burn. So it's not easy, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and you have to spend time dedicating moments to actually writing custom e- one thing you're good at is custom emails you try to bond with people initially like hey i wrote in hollywood and this person is in hollywood like you you try to, to connect the dots and you recently published a list of 50 uh networkers to watch i think it was for forbes yeah what what article was that professional networking ex- it was an article on uh the 50 professional networking experts to watch in 2015 and the reason was there are all these different experts out there that I, you know, have followed and I, I like their advice. People like Michael Port or Susan Rowan or Dory Clark, Bob Berg, um, people like that. And um, I, I couldn't find an article anywhere where uh, there was a list of them. So I said, I'm going to create it. What was your criteria for judging people that were, you know, affected networkers? Um, it was whoever would send me cookies afterwards. That was my so criteria. Bribery was a big part of it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, bottles, of- you, bottles of booze. Yeah, that was even better. Actually, the booze was definitely better. Um, No, it was it was it was simply, you know, um, uh, people who I read and and admired who consistently put out value to the world. Either they would put out a a book or blog posts or podcasts or you name it, um, trainings, that that kind of thing. And where do you think uh, just in this year, like you mentioned, webinars, we're talking, you know, previously, where do webinars you know, impact you in the sense of networking and providing value? Because I think this webinars is still a very early industry as far as like adding value to people. And even myself, I don't completely understand even how to host one, but where do webinars fit into this spectrum of, you know, giving and actually networking with people? Well, I think that um, it's all about building relationships at scale. I write about this a lot and I talk about this a lot on my podcast is um, as your career grows, your lim- your time limiting factor is time. Your limiting factor is going to be time and also your own availability. Right. And so it becomes more difficult to manage your network. You know, you've got more and more people in your network. It becomes more difficult. And then it becomes more important to use tools that allow you to what I call scale your relationships. So maintain relationships with a larger group of people faster. Okay. So uh, quickly without, you know, doing, you can't send 10,000 one-on-one emails. So there are tools you can use. A podcast is one of them. A blog is another one. An email list is another one. And a webinar is another one because they're all about one person, you, communicating to a larger group of people. And a webinar gives you kind of an intimacy and an immediacy uh, because it's all happening live that you don't get from any of those other uh, types of technology. And so and I, when I talk to people and they ask advice you know, about how to connect with people in their industry, I think a podcast is the, the easiest. I mean, it's a lot of work, but it's the easiest way to create an opportunity to network with someone because you can talk to people way outside your weight class that are more senior, you know, executive level founders of companies that you never would have met. Yeah, well, there's two different types of networking, right? I mean, there's or relationship building. There's the person that you're interviewing, and that's one I think people lose. They they forget about that one. They forget about the the real value of having a podcast, or if you don't have a podcast, interviewing, just interviewing, period, and using it for some other purpose. How you can really use that as an excuse for building relationships with people. But that's one element. The other element is the the listener. 
the person who's got you in your earbuds. Right. You're building a relationship with them as well. And you've written a few books. One of them, uh, you actually collaborate with, I think, nine, ten other authors. What, what, which is that? In multiple books? <laughs> oh, I let's see. I have. Uh... You, you wrote a book on Amazon. You just tweeted out, and I I tried to buy it, and, and the link didn't work. And uh, oh, whoops. Okay, I have to fix that. Well, there was a book called Creating Business Growth. I liked it. You, well, you wrote with a bunch of other authors. I thought it was a cool yeah, idea. Yeah, like 21 other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You, you, you actually uh, you outsource a lot of your, your heavy lifting and work to smarter people. Yes, I did, and it was smart. Um, no, uh, that so that book, this is what's amazing about the new world. This is why I get so excited about applying timeless relationship-building strategies to the new world of digital tools that we have available at our fingerprints. Fingertips. That that was a case of it was a group of of individuals. They're mostly small business owners slash marketing consultants slash business advisors. We meet online in a variety of different capacities, a forum and, and whatnot. And there's some impressive people who are a member of this group. More a lot more impressive than me, and uh, not that I'm impressive. But you 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 were the inspiration for Rob Lowe's character on The West Wing. That's um, so, that's a story. That's the story I'm sticking to. Let's that's be honest, for sure. You know, come on, you, yeah. don't, don't undersell yourself. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so this group of people literally was like someone threw out the idea. It was like, hey, what if we were all to contribute a chapter and write a book together? And someone else was like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then everyone else was like, hey, who recommended this? And everyone was like, it was Stefan. And it was like, oh, okay, Stefan's gonna do it. And then poor Stefan got stuck with the whole job. But it was wonderful because it, <laughs> it hit. It hit number one in Amazon in eight different categories. It was number one in multiple countries in different categories. That's and awesome. You name it. Yeah, so it was really cool. And so you ended up, um, you're a lawyer by day, but then you have all these great products you sell, like courses, and you write books, and you have your email lists. Uh, what would you call your other career that's not a lawyer? Are you just a dude who does a lot of stuff that's really cool? Like, how, I think it's very interesting because you're part of a, a, a new community of people that you know obviously we're both have friends in common that do stuff like this figuring out ways to monetize our our ideas and our thoughts and products how do you describe what you do like when you're when your grandfather asks you know that side of your business what do you say it's tough i mean it really depends on the audience how you explain it to people um and, you know there's a lot of probably service professionals who are listening to this right now who are thinking man that sounds good and and that's really what attracted me in many different ways there are a lot of different reasons why i do this but um i basically the way i usually describe it is today i run two different businesses one is i have a small boutique law firm in the san francisco bay area and my clients are primarily entrepreneurs and small business owners and i help them with legal problems and i help them to grow and the other side, which is also related, the other business that I run is a blog and a podcast called Smart Business Revolution, and I help people to get better at managing relationships. Or a longer explanation is I help people to use timeless relationship-building strategies and to apply them to the world of new digital tools that we have available today. And we were talking about earlier Michael Port saying, you know, creating your own IP is important right now. And so you talk about, like, you talk about VIPs and connecting with influencers, like, What's the terminology do you feel like you've branded yourself as that resonates with people? Um, a couple different terms. I mean, my my the website Out, outside of being a relationship doctor, which, uh, which the uh, love doctor, yeah. right? Which is probably trademarked by someone. I probably shouldn't be calling myself that. Dot co. Um, you know, my my uh, the the tagline that I've been using fairly consistently that resonates with people is "Turn your relationships into revenue." 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, you know, the name of my course and a term that I use a lot is, um, connect with influencers. Um, and it, but it really, uh, an influencer can be anyone. It can be someone who's world famous or it could be just someone who's successful in your local small town that you'd like to get to know better. Right. Whatever the category is that you're in. So then, and you, uh, you had, you've done a great job the last six, eight months building your email list and, uh, you've exceeded expectations. We've talked about it on fizzle. What, what, just explain to people that don't understand the value of an email list, because I think, I work, I've worked in social media for years, and I, I'm so over social media. We've talked about this. It's an era that I think is no longer as relevant, and I don't like people that manage social media marketing out of fear. Like, you, you're not on Pinterest? What do you mean you're not on Pinterest? Like, you need to hire me, and I think that that's a, a common thing is, wait, you're not on Snapchat yet? All the influencers are going to Snapchat. you got to get there. When the good old-fashioned email list is really the t- tried-and-true way to sell products and promote your, your ideas to, to the world. Yeah, well, it's funny because a lot. Some people will still say, "Well, isn't email dead?" You know, I yeah. mean, is it? Don't you need a YouTube channel? Or you need Twitter, well, all that kind of stuff. Across the board, if you looked at the statistics, the engagement, the response rate of email far outranks any social media platform. So the bottom line is, people still read their email. Everyone checks their email every day, probably multiple times a day. The statistics say that people spend, on average, over 11 hours per week in their inbox. So people are are reading their email, and it's a direct communication channel that you have to communicate with someone directly with them. And so I've prioritized that in my business over everything else. And and I've basically been able to track my income from my blog and podcast, which has increased in parallel with the increase in subscribers on my email list. It's just tremendous. Really? There's a direct correlation. The more emails you have, the more income. Really? Some months, really? multiples. Some months, it's, it's multiples. I mean, you can generally say, you know, I was just reading John Morrow. who has got a great uh, blog boostblogtraffic.com. He's a tremendous writer. And he said that generally you should assume a dollar per subscriber per month if you're monetizing it right. And some months in his site, they do two or three dollars per subscriber per month. So once you've figured that out, and once you've figured out the way that you're monetizing, it's, it's in order to scale, you just add more people to the subscriber list. What, you know, what, and when you're a service... Bit, sorry, go ahead. When you're a service professional, you understand fundamentally that your your limitations are your amount of time and the amount you can charge for what it is you do. And there are limits to both of those. But when you have a business that is just based on, um, you know, you've got a product or something and you just need to get more people in the funnel, i.e. you need to get more people on the email list, then you can continue to grow your revenue without that kind of ceiling limitation. And you mentioned before that... Uh doing guest posts on other people's blogs are a great way to get your email list. Like what are some other uh, you know, tips you can give people about growing email lists? Well, we could do a whole episode on guest posting because there's a lot that goes into that. But guest posting is tremendous for a number of different reasons. Relationship building is one of them. Um, credibility. It increase, increases social proof. If you've written on some blog or, or website that is well-known to people, um, it gives you an opportunity to interview someone maybe for that blog or, or website. Um, and so guest blogging has absolutely been one of the biggest things I've done. And then webinars, which we talked about a little bit, webinars uh, is the other one. Um, I mean, I've had webinars. I had a webinar last week. Uh, you know, I, 
I don't really like it when people talk about money, when they talk about how much they, yeah. So, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter, but I've had webinars that I've made, you know, multiple thousands of dollars from. I've also had webinars I made zero off and of because, because the webinars, people are, but you're not charging for the webinars, but your people are buying products from the webinars. Right. So the webinars that I do are free. Um, I've done one paid live event so far, but usually they're free. And, and, you know, it's understood that you might sell a course at the end. In fact, if you don't sell something, you don't offer something at the end, sometimes people get upset because they want to go deeper. Yeah. Or, you know, they're they're like, I I like this. I I just spent an hour studying it. I want more. And, And then it's like, what, you don't have anything more? So they could get upset about it. So, um, what's a course that you sell then? Like what's... Love to talk more about some of your products that actually people could buy or that you've had success selling. Sure, yeah. So, because um, I think the, the era of products, people think people think Facebook or Twitter or a mobile app are products, but in the, in this era now, it's really books, podcasts, uh, online courses. There's so many other new products that not everyone is going to make a technology app. It's just it's there's limited resources. We don't need this many food apps, but people can make their own products a lot more easily and sell them and actually have additional income coming in. Right. Yeah. And you can you can share your expertise. Right. Right. Through through these different through these different mediums. And there's a lot of different ways that you can monetize it. But the the similarity between an app and a book or a film or a song or a, a digital course, an online training program, is they all once you create it, you can sell it over and over and over and over again. Right. Unlike a traditional professional services model where each time you're applying your knowledge to the person and you, there's only one of you, so there's, you can only do that for one person at a time. Um, unless you scale and you start doing it for multiple people, like a larger group type of thing. Yeah, but you're right, though. The whole, people talk about money at nauseum it just gets so like, out of control. So it's obnoxious. And everyone's trying to find this passive income, which it's not realistic. Not everyone's going to great passive income yeah and don't get me started on that i mean i i i think generally a lot of people don't understand the word passive income they they assume it means they're not gonna have to work yeah yeah and you know even guys like pat flynn who's a really stand-up guy really honest guy he's got a site called smart passive income he will say that you have to work really hard and it's really not about never working it's about working hard now so you can benefit later what i prefer as a term is snowball income it's you you put in a lot of work and as over time as time passes your income can snowball it can increase over time so the way the way i compare it if you're let's say that you're a consultant or let's say you're a therapist right and you have monday morning at 9am you have an hour long appointment the person comes in they pays you they pay you $100 to meet with you and then the next person comes in and the next person and the next person you never continue to benefit there's no snowball effect Versus, let's say you took that hour of your time and you devoted it to creating something that was maybe a product or something like that. Um, you can continue to benefit from that hour, that 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Monday morning for the rest of your life or for years and years. Versus the model where you've just traded your time for someone you know, getting a bit of your time. And so what's a product that you, you've had some success with? That's a course that we could, you know, dive into a little bit to say, like how you actually have constructed a course that someone could buy that you could make money, you know, while you're being a lawyer on top of it, you know, because like, you're you're with a client and then you you get a you know a five hundred dollar you know receipt in your email, that's awesome because you put the time in to create something you're really proud of and it's helping other people, 
but more importantly, it's something that you're, like you're saying, it's evergreen. It's not, it's there. It can live forever. Yeah. Right. It's something that, you know, and it's about creating something that's timeless versus timely. Yes. You know, I mean, Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine and the New York, the, today's issue of the New York Times are timely. Tomorrow, they're not worth as much right. as they were today versus To Kill a Mockingbird is worth just as much tomorrow as it was yesterday. Right. You know, and, and that book's been sold for 50 years. So, you know, when I create a course, I want to create something that's timeless, that's going to last forever. My flagship course is called Connect with Influencers, and I don't actually have it for sale directly on my site. I actually only sell it through webinars. Right now, I'm only selling it through webinars for other people's audiences. So I will um, so, you know, have partner with someone, and I'll hold a webinar just for their audience. I'll do a 60-minute deep dive training, cover as much as I can, give them as much value as possible, and then at the end, if they like the ideas and they want to go further, obviously I can't cover everything in an hour, then I'll say, hey, here's my course. You're welcome to buy it if you like. And are those videos? It's a combination of videos, me speaking directly to the camera and screencasts and worksheets. And actually, you know, I think that's a lot more valuable. You know, um, there is value to writing a book and, and um, um I'm not going to say that there isn't value to writing a book, but you know, you write a Kindle book and you can sell it for three ninety nine or whatever. I mean, the prices are not very big. In exchange, you've got access to a larger marketplace. You know, there are more buyers in there, but you still can't sell it for that much. You got to sell a heck of a lot of those in order to make a lot of revenue. It's almost like a book is book is more of a resume thing at this point versus something like a course, which is more interactive. And how many hours of actual content would I get from a online course of yours? Um, uh, my, my, my connect with influencers course is I think 40 plus hours over okay. four. Yeah. Or, or, you know what it may be, I think it's 40 videos. So it's probably more like maybe like 20 plus hours or something like that. But I mean, you know, you, you don't want a hundred hours. You aren't going to watch a hundred hours. Right. You yeah. know I mean? It, what's more important is the quality of the content. So you made videos of yourself talking and teaching lessons and it's like a modern version of a school that you're going to get, you know, practical, applicable advice. It's a good analogy. I mean, let's say you're a teacher, right? I mean, the old model for the last hundreds and hundreds of years, up until really like the last 10 to 15 years, was if you wanted to share your knowledge and expertise, let's say you were a teacher, you could be a teacher. And that means that during the spring semester between January and May or June, you get up each day, three days a week, you go and teach your course, and then you do it again year after year after every year. It's possible now through technology, and many people are doing this, to create a course on whatever topic you choose and then to create it so that it unfolds in that same way as a college course would. Right. So your recipient, your person who bought it, receives that information. It, literally all these things can be automated, receives that information in the same sequence, the same order as they would a college course. And so on the recipient's end, it's, it's as if it's unfolding in real time over a month, two months, three months, whatever. But from, from a creator's standpoint, you don't have to be there physically present. In fact, you, you might put a lot of effort into selling it to a large group of people, but then once you've sold it, then you can actually spend your time on other things like creating another course. And that's where you get into the snowball income I'm talking about. And how much does the does that specific class cost? That one is um, well, it, it varies depending on what is included with it. But for the partners, many of the partners that I've been selling it for, it's been two ninety seven. Okay, okay. 
and you put a lot of equity and time into it. So people are buying something of value for the price tag. My 20 years of experience that goes yeah. into the, went into that course. So yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Deal. Well, you know, working with Rob Lowe, right? Weren't you his body double in those direct TV commercials? That's right. He and I are, we're BFF. We hang out on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's awesome. I feel like you've got this, it's, this is a new business formula that I think is starting to catch on a lot more. And I think the snowball effect is a lot more applicable snowball income versus passive because passive sounds lazy. It's like get rich quick in a lot of people's minds. And so they glamorize it, right? Oh, I want to be like, you know, making money when I'm on the beach. But really, it's like a lot of upfront work and building things for years using expertise that you've garnered for a long time to actually give something that people would buy for. And I think online courses could supplant education in, in, the, in the near future as far as, you know, go to college, what do you really get? A poli-sci degree? You know, but if you take 10 classes and you can become a coder or you become a marketer. So uh, anyway, I think that's a... That's a good note to end on. This is a very good, like, actionable episode. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, we've covered a lot of different ground here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> different, different things, but hopefully it gave some people some ideas. Um, it's been a journey for me. Um, I've been practicing law for about eight years now, and I've been building my online presence for, well, I started writing for the web in like the late 90s originally, and then I have had a blog since at least 2007, 2008, different incarnations. And then the last three years, been really working hard on this. The last year, I've really, it's really grown a lot. And now 2015, I'm just completely excited about the potential of where it's going to go and, and everything. And, and it's allowed me as a service professional, as a lawyer, to be more selective in which clients I decided to work with, which is really the dream. You want to be able to choose which clients you want to work with and which you don't. And then also, whenever you're a service professional, almost every service professional experiences these types of um, you know, roller coaster effect where it's busy and then it's not busy and that sort of thing. And it's nice to be able to have something that you can sell during those slow periods because in a professional services firm, it can take a while to ramp up, right? It can take a while to, right. to cultivate the relationships that lead to business versus if you have a product, um, there are things you can do that allow that revenue to even out, so to speak, and, and even to scale and increase over time. Yeah, totally. And so you can actually, like, because businesses go up and down and, wax and wane over time, big years, small years, but this at least, sup if you have a lower year, it supplants the fact that you could actually make income while you're still finding new business. And, or if you start a new company, like, or if you're writing a book, you know, having all these income streams. Right. But it does start with a, having an audience. Yeah. Uh, having people who are interested in what you have to say. And that's where an email list can really come in. So it's where it's crucially important. Oh. Where do we find you, your email list, your courses, your podcast? Um, well, if you go to uh, smartbusinessrevolution.com, you can check it out there. Um, and if you go to, uh, why don't I set up a little welcome page for all your listeners? We'll go to um, smartbusinessrevolution.com slash influencer. How's that sound? That Just influencer? Yeah. Okay, so smartbusinessrevolution.com slash influencer, and they can... Um, they can grab my free ebook there, the one I think we were talking about earlier, How to Increase Your Income Today by Building Relationships with Influencers, Even If You Hate Networking, like so many of us do. You can grab that. It's a 52-page ebook, which really kind of lays out my philosophy. Okay, cool. And then your podcast is where, it's on iTunes. iTunes, and, and... yep, that's right. Smart Business Revolution. Check it out. 
And so this is the relationship and love doctor, John Corcoran. That's right. And, Thank you. and Ryan, you were kind enough to come on my podcast, and that episode will be airing uh, sometime soon. This is like, this, it's a crossover episode. You know, we got, this is like when Facts of Life, you know, would have Arnold Jackson from Different Strokes or, you know, Growing Pains would have on the, the people from. A little, be- little before my time. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. I, I mean, um, the OC, you know, that show you. Prince grew- the OC. Now that, that's, a, that's still late 90s or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, early two thousands. Yeah, Degrassi High. How I Met My Brother, Mother, or whatever. Say by the <laughs> Bell. Is that, no, I do old. not watch any. I do not watch any sitcoms. That's for sure. Um, my brother works in reality TV in LA, so he's he's been on uh, the Amazing Race and some cool shows like that. Okay. Yeah. So, so thank you, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> awesome. That was great. That was great.